Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, welcome to FEPS Talks. Uh, my name is Laszlo Ander. I'm the Secretary General of FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in uh, Brussels. This is our podcast series and the first episode of 2023. And for this first episode, we invited a member of the FEPS Scientific Council, Gerhard Stahl. And Gerhard, first of all, I would like to congratulate you for this book, which you recently published in German on China. And this book uh, provides a basis for our conversation today, because I would say that since the book was published, perhaps the topic became even more interesting and more central for the discussions on global politics. But before we go uh, to discuss the substance of the book, which is asking whether China is a model for the future or it's a nightmare, uh, let me tell our listeners where you come from. You started your professional career in the German Ministry of Finance, And then after a while, you left Germany and moved to Brussels. And you worked for various uh, EU institutions, including the European Parliament, but also the Commission. And for 10 years, you worked as the Secretary General of the Committee of the Regions. Somehow this was not enough. You started um, a teaching career and became a visiting professor at the Peking University, HSBC, and the business school in Shenzhen since 2014. So there is a very substantial teaching career behind you, which connects uh, your European experience with the Chinese one. But I would also like to highlight that apart from teaching transition economics and institutional economics, you have been uh, a regular uh, contributors to conferences and expert meetings in China an advisor of uh, the Chinese um, Environmental NGO Ecological Development Union International, which brought to you not only to the big cities, but also the countryside of these uh, big countries. So maybe uh, this is where I would suggest starting our conversation. That after these um, visits to different parts of China, how do you see this country differently? than the average Europeans who maybe once or twice uh, visited China or never visited China. Thank you very much for this uh, nice and, and long introduction of my experience. Coming to uh, your question, how do we see China? I think this is uh, really a very important question because we are discussing a lot in media, in political circles, in economic circles about China. But I fear We don't look enough into the reality of China. Very often it's based on general views and not really understanding enough. So the purpose of my book was therefore very much also to bring to people a more complete view of this country. China is not comparable to nation states in Europe or even in North America. China is almost one-fifth of the world population. It is 1.4 billion people. It is a development country with almost medieval structures on some rural parts, and it is a high-tech society in the coastal metropolitan areas. It is also 
a country which is ruled by one leading party, the Communist Party. There are also other parties, but the Communist Party in the constitution is the leading uh, party. But at the same time, it is a very decentralized country where the provinces have a lot of autonomy, where also Beijing has a lot of difficulties to influence the different parts of this big society and of this big system. And also in terms of budgetary power, it's a very decentralized system. More than 80% of public expenditure is made on the regional and local level. That's uh, quite different even to federal states, where normally 50% of national expenditure is on the national level. And the other 50% in federal states like Germany or the United States are on the level of the provinces or, or cities or regions. So... Our view about China as a centralized country is not reflecting the reality. Mm -hmm. And then in addition, you have 50 uh, different nationalities which are recognized in the constitutions with specific rights. Even if the Han the Chinese are by far the dominant group, there are all these other groups who also make up this uh, big country. So in this sense, we should see it as part of almost the world, which has the difficulty to organize this society, which is extremely different. And um, this complex society, does it constitute a new developmental model? If we come closer to the analytical points of, of your book, how, how this has happened? Because I think we all know from a distance that China went through a massive transformation in the last 50 years. But is this a sustainable model? Is this a model which others should look at as a kind of inspiration, at least partly? I think we can learn from China quite a lot for developing an economy. But I wouldn't say that China is a model for others. Neither I would say that Europe or the United States might be the model. I am very doubtful that we can too much tell different development countries what they should do. I think we have to accept that development is always marked by very specific conditions. So what we can learn from China, and in this sense, it might be an interesting model for developing countries. This is that you have to combine a strategic planning with creating a market spirit. So somehow it's almost ironical that you have a socialist market economy. Mm. We would expect socialism is against markets. But what Chinese has fairly successfully done is to use market instruments in the context of a strategic planning, which exposes the society in a very planned way to market mechanisms and to market conditions. So you have, for example, still collective land ownership on the countryside, whereas you have the normal, almost Anglo-Saxon Uh, type of economy in the developed coastal high-tech areas. Mm -hmm. I think this is uh, something which is good indication. The next is that China has a lot of very different projects. That means uh, specific economic zones where they attract investors, offer them specific conditions, which you don't get in other parts of the country. And they organize then a close cooperation 
between public authority, the provincial governments or the city governments, and the business. So mm -hmm. also this public-private cooperation is something which I think is very helpful. The way you describe this model reminds me the debates in Hungary and East Central Europe in the late 80s and early 90s. And I think this is the model which was not taken in those times because the East Europeans went for a more radical introduction of the so-called free market. And uh, for example, what you refer to the collective ownership of land was abolished very quickly in the rural areas. But I think you can uh, compare probably the East European countries who joined then uh, the European Union more with some regions or some pilot uh, projects in China because these uh, pilot regions are fairly big. If you look pilot regions, for example, the big bay area around Shenzhen, Hong Kong and Guangzhou, these are 80 million people. In mm -hmm. this sense, they are also parts of China which will go for a very quick change, but they protected other parts of this very, very big country from the market consequences. So I think it's a bit difficult to compare fairly small European countries mm -hmm. with the policy which was taken for this 1.4 billion people. How does this system get into a confrontation with the West? Because now I think uh, the subtitle of your book, which is asking uh, where we are between partnership and confrontation, I think we have been shifting towards a confrontation. Are the reasons for this in China or are the re reasons for this in more general in the international system? So I agree very much with your judgment that We are in a confrontational situation with China. The public opinion in European countries has become very negative. And in the United States, there is a clear policy since already some years to understand, uh, to see China as the big strategic rival. And even uh, there are congressional resolutions supported by both parties who express the position that China is also a danger for world peace. In this sense, we are in a confrontational situation at the moment. And China will not change because this system was very, uh, very successful. It helped China to become from one of the poorest countries of the world now to uh, the second biggest and maybe in purchasing powers already the biggest economy. So why should China change? Then mm -hmm. the question is, what conclusions have to be drawn. And I think the conclusion is that we have to change our understanding of market economy and to adapt the same cooperation between public authorities and uh, the business to succeed in this new fifth industrial revolution with new technologies. So if we are not prepared to change then we are in a confrontation. But I think if we would be prepared to change, and to a certain extent, we are doing this already, then I think uh, we have a chance uh, to compete successfully with China and not to end up in such a confrontational setting. 
let me ask, although I don't know how significant it is anymore, the COVID-19 experience, because that originated from China. Obviously, they took a different strategy to combat the coronavirus. And now, even in the latest weeks, at the end of 2022, the change of the Chinese policy uh, resulted in kind of reactions. Is the COVID-19 a kind of significant factor that's changing the relation between China and the world, or it's an episode which might be less significant than the other aspects like, you know, technology or Chinese investment in Africa. I would assume after now the correction of the COVID policy that it was a painful episode which closed China from the international uh, economy in the international world almost three years, but that it will not be an experience which will be prolonged. What it showed, I think, is also that China is still in a lot of areas a development country because it showed that China, in contrary to European countries or in contrary to the United States was not able to handle this pandemic. It created everywhere a lot of difficulties for the health system. But if you look to the Chinese health system, it is still a very underdeveloped health system. China mm -hmm. only has 3% of its GDP as public expenditure for the health sector. There's another 3% which is privately spent on health. So it means it's only 6% which goes into the health sector. Therefore, this health sector was not at all able and is not at all able to cope with the pandemic. So in this sense, you see still how much China has to develop to become the modern country, which it is in part, but only partially in some areas and some cities. And therefore, it showed how much China still has to do. China has now a last moment of opportunity to develop before it becomes old with mm -hmm. this one-child policy, which was very important for enabling China to develop quickly. They also laid the ground for a society which becomes very quickly very old. And old society obviously is economically less productive, needs more social expenditure. In this sense, China has a last chance to become wealthy for most of the Chinese before becoming old. Well, this is very interesting because this might be in contrast with this general perception that China is an increasing threat. And even NATO included you know, something groundbreaking uh, last year in this regard. But if we look at this situation of confrontations through two important visits to the region, maybe we can explore this uh, matter further. One was uh, Speaker Pelosi from the United States uh, visiting uh, Taiwan in uh, quite controversial circumstances. And the other one was uh, a few months later, Chancellor Schultz visiting with an economic delegation, China itself, which was also seen by some as an at least untimely, if not controversial. How do you see these different approaches, these different strategies in terms of navigating this difficult relationship for the future? I think the visit of Pelosi is a very interesting example where one can see how policies towards China are changing in the United States. Allow me to maybe remember a bit the history of the Taiwan issue. Or oh, this is linked to the civil war which took place after the Second World War, where finally uh, the communist 
succeeded in the mainland China and the Nationalist Party of China then took refugee on Taiwan, where two million soldiers, civil servants and other Chinese then installed themselves in Taiwan and established there a military dictatorship. And for a long time, this Taiwan government was recognized as the representative of whole China by Western countries, whereas the socialist countries in the past recognized Beijing as the representation of the whole of China. So we had therefore never an acceptance that Taiwan is not part of China. It was only who represents China. And then we had this dramatic change in the relationship towards communist China, when Nixon in 72 went to Beijing, met Mao, and when finally the United States succeeded to take the communist government out of the socialist uh, bloc. And as an end result, then also the United States changed its position towards Taiwan and closed the embassy which they had in Taiwan in 79 and then established the embassy in Beijing. And this is the one China policy. That means China is recognized as the representation of the whole of China. And up to now, nobody of the Western countries corrected this position. And also in Taiwan, it was until the 80s even forbidden to say that Taiwan is independent. But what is now happening, and uh, this is interesting if you look to the political debate in Taiwan, that you have the two parties who develop differently. You have Kuomintang, who still as a majority says that Taiwan is part of the whole of China. And you have this progressive party, which is more and more voicing uh, the interest of the younger generation who feels different from mainland China. And so we have now an internal economic uh, debate, in, and Taiwan has not yet declared that it wants to be independent. But uh, the government in Beijing fears that the development in Taiwan goes into this direction. And in so far, a visit of Pelosi is very much an element taking part in an internal discussion in Taiwan to reinforce those who express their interest in declaring an independence from China. And the United States has shifted its position uh, by the declaration of Biden, which said that the United States will defend Taiwan. Yes. And this is a, a difference to the official position which was taken when the United States was developing diplomatic relations with Peking and stopped diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So I think the U.S. is kind of peeling off the one-China policy and in a way facilitating this uh, confrontational trend. I think you have a, a tendency. The Biden administration still underlined that it sticks to the one-China policy which means to recognize only Beijing as the representative of China. But you had already the former State Secretary Mike Pompeo, who in a speech in Taiwan demanded that the United States drops the one China policy and recognizes officially Taiwan as an independent uh, state. And how does this frame the visit of Chancellor Olaf Scholz, which was more motivated by you know, maintaining economic relations with China despite this new new slide into a Cold War. 
I think the visit of Scholz underlined that there is still an interest in economic and political cooperation with China. And I found uh, this visit uh, successful, even if there has been also internal critics in, in Germany, because Scholz not only underlined the common interest in economic cooperation, he also addressed difficult issues like the Ukraine war and even then uh, got a clear position of the Chinese uh, president to say that any use of nuclear weapons is unacceptable. So in this sense, I think it's also helpful to reduce risks on the military escalation in the Ukraine war, which is terrible enough. And he also addressed uh, questions of human rights. China continue to engage in human rights dialogue because we have a human rights dialogue on the European level and also with different member states. So in this sense, I found it a successful visit, touching also difficult issues which are not economic issues. Assuming um, that this rivalry, this new global rivalry, doesn't escalate into a military uh, clash, uh, what can it deliver in terms of economics, uh, because you have this perception that the aim of uh, the U.S. measures is somehow to prevent China to continue its forward march in technological development and being a leader on a variety of new technologies, um, in high-tech especially. Do you expect these types of outcomes, or is there at all a kind of defined goal of uh, containing Chinese economic power? I have a lot of difficulty with some of the political statements coming out from the American Congress, who is focusing very much on this geopolitical rivalry. I don't think that it uh, reflects the interest of the American society in the American economy. Uh, in any case, it does not reflect European interests. Very often, part of this aggressive political debate is more for home consumption, because it is good to get some uh, positive election results if you are tough towards China. In the economic reality, I think also the American position is far more sophisticated, because if you, uh, if you look to American financial institutions, they are still very much engaged in China. They are still American investors who invest in China and who use this slow opening up of the Chinese financial markets very much to be there and to be the first one to be invested. So in this sense, I still see that the benefit of economic cooperation with China is seen by American business people as well as by European companies. So I'm not sure what will be the end result between this effort to stop the transfer of technology mm -hmm. and therefore deprive China from a quick further economic uh, development in these areas and nevertheless the continuation of economic cooperation on quite a number of areas. So I would somehow expect that we get a bit balance between developing a strategic technology policy where we are careful not to lose competitive advantages. And mm -hmm. when we start to follow a bit the Chinese system in supporting with governmental assistance our companies, and on the other side, uh, still benefiting from cooperation with this enormous part of the world. If we saw some kind of continuity 
between different U.S. administrations in the recent decade. I mean, on so many issues, you know, there was a polar opposite between, let's say, the Trump and the Biden administrations. But uh, considering China the main global threat, if you want, because of its trade surpluses, because of its investment campaigns, perceived assertiveness in foreign policy, I think this is a common thread now in um, you know diverse trends or streams of um, U.S. foreign policy. And there are many opinions you can hear that what is happening in uh, Ukraine or vis-a-vis Russia is basically some kind of preparation for a greater confrontation, which is about the main issue, this kind of duopoly in the global system between the United States and China. Is it exaggerated in your view? I think there's the real risk that we are sleepwalking somehow in a confrontational world, which would not at all help the Western countries, and it would neither have any benefits for the authoritarian part of the world. But as you described very correctly, there is somehow more and more aggressive policy and this idea to put China and Russia in the same baskets mm-hmm. and declaring that there is an authoritarian world against democracies is building up a mindset which might lead to geopolitical confrontation, including even military risks and even wars. And there is quite a literature in the United States declaring more or less that this geopolitical conflict might be unavoidable. There's a nice name, Tukidides Strap, which uh, was created to say that if new power is threatening the position of the existing hegemonial power, this normally needs, uh, leads to confrontation and war. And mm. therefore, I think the risk of ending up in a tragedy, therefore, it is very much necessary to look into the reality of China and see that this is a sophisticated big part of the world and not simply an authoritarian regime, which we put in the baskets with, for example, Russia. Russia is not comparable to China. China does not have any interest in a military confrontation. China is successful in a peaceful world, whereas Russia was no more successful in a peaceful world. The only instrument which Russia had left was the strong military to defend Mm. its assumed interest. And this Mm. is the big difference between China. China does not need military to develop its economic interest, its political interest. I think this is a very important uh, differentiation. Um, Let me ask you finally uh, just one question about Europe's position, because I think we cannot end this uh, conversation without responding uh, to the subtitle of your book, Are We Closer to Partnership or Confrontation from a European Perspective? Is there any chance for what we used to call strategic autonomy in the European uh, debates to develop some kind of autonomous European policy vis-a-vis China for the coming years? I think this new world obliges European countries to be less naive and innocent. A bit under the protection of the United States, European countries could concentrate on the economy and not having a real strategic view about other parts of the world. And this was very much uh, the situation also for the German government or the different German governments. They did not 
look into too much geopolitical questions. They concentrated on economic developments. And I think this uh, time is over. So Europe has to look into all aspects which are of importance uh, to be able to stand a competition in this new multipolar world. And for this, you need technological sovereignty. That means you have to have access to key technologies, which is a difficult debate because they are monopolies, for example, in tech uh, and uh, digital economy areas where Europe has not yet succeeded to have companies who are able to compete in this area. But there is also this need to be independent for defense. And as long as Europe has not clarified how it can defend its country without being dependent from the United States, I think it will be a, a difficult development to find all the elements for sovereignty. So in this sense, there's still a, a need for long discussion. Uh, Gerhard, why don't we uh, close with this point? And I should thank you for uh, these conclusions, but also uh, the insight uh, presented in your book uh, based on your experience in this field. And I think we couldn't have chosen a better subject to start 2023 because last year was clearly overshadowed um, by the war in Ukraine and these global conflicts will um, one way or another develop further. And um, I think this insight is needed indeed in order to navigate these dynamics towards the cooperative side if possible and ensure that uh, the European Union can uh, continue to play a constructive role in these global affairs. Fabs is grateful to you for sharing your time and wisdom. And I wish that you also can publish in English or other languages to make this accessible beyond the German-speaking world. And we thank our listeners uh, for being with us. And uh, we come in the coming weeks with further interesting topics in Fabs Talks. Goodbye. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.